Well, good morning. Um, today we will finish up this series of <clears throat> in wonder of his love, in wonder of God's fulfilled promises. This is through the wise man. So if you have your Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today. And we'll start at verse 2, and then we'll work our way through 16. And we'll probably be in a lot of other scriptures today, because that's just, that's just what God's Word does for us. It allows us to just bring out His Word. His truths are all central to this incredible message, this, this God's promise of a Savior to you and I. And so today, we'll look at um, several. So before we get going, I have a question for you. The question is, what does Christmas invoke in you? Or maybe, maybe it says, and this is going to be interactive. I know that's a risk. It's a risk. I saw what happened earlier. It's a risk. But um, what does Christmas prompt you to want to do? And just, you just say it. I'm curious. Give. Christmas causes you to want to give. Anybody else? Be in awe. Carl says, be in awe. Anybody else? You have to be so spiritual, right? <laughs> Loosen up. We're amongst friends. Like I have to give the right Christian answer. You do have to give the right Christian answer. I'm just kidding. What is it? Yeah, hope. Absolutely. See, listen, we're going to look at about three different groups of people at the end of this message clearly Christmas, or better said, better said, the birth of Christ meant something really different to them. And only one of them got it right. So Matt sends me an email, and it's got this message, and the title is Wise Men in Wonder of God's Fulfilled Promises. So I kind of focused in on those last three words, God's fulfilled promises, God's promises, that made me think, well, how many of God's promises are in his word? So I did what all great researchers do today. I Googled it. <laughs> I Googled it. it Google revealed 8,810 promises in the Bible. God's promises to you and I. 88, I have a list of them. Then we're not, I don't have a list of them. We're not going to go through the list. But we are going to talk about a few of his promises. You ever made a promise? What's the difference between your promise and God's promise? Ours can be broken, right? Our promises can be broken. God's promises will never be broken. It's not possible for God to be able to break one of his promises to us. What was your promise? I promise to get all A's. If you're in school, you ever make that promise? I never made that promise. <laughs> it wasn't possible for me to get all A's. I went to public school. <laughs> it wasn't possible for me to get all A's. Oh, what about as a parent? Oh, if you get all A's, I promise you I'll do this. What was another promise? I promise I won't be like the neighbor's kids. Now, I hope you're not the neighbor. <laughs> and your kids are the one that people are going, oh, Lord, not like them. You know, there's been a many husbands that's promised wives, I won't that anymore. There's probably been a lot of wives that told their husbands, I won't 
that anymore. What do you think the greatest promise you ever made and you kept was? The greatest promise that you ever made that you actually kept. You followed through with it. I got a better question. This is a better question. (laughs) What about God's greatest promise to you that you accepted? Because he's got 8,810 of them, so says Google. And the world is not filled with believers, unfortunately, though that was his plan and is his plan. Maybe the greatest promise that God made to you that you accepted sounded something like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe that was the promise that you accepted. It was the promise that I accepted. Maybe, maybe this was the promise. Maybe we saw it in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If we just simply, God promises us, if we simply believe in our heart, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then we will be saved. That's an incredible promise. Maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's what we see in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, if then, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Man, I'm waiting on that to be fulfilled. Humble. Starts off with humble ourselves. I don't have Facebook. I don't know how to log on to Facebook. That is a true story. I'm assuming you do Facebook.com and then you put your name, but I don't know anything about Facebook. I do look at LinkedIn. It's the only social media that I looked in. I don't see a lot of humility on, on social media. A lot of pride. A lot of me. But I don't see a lot of humility. Maybe it was Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks find, and the one who knocks the door will be open. Maybe that's the promise that God made that you accepted. You know, sometimes we, we say, well, God, well, well, I asked. I've been asking. You sure have been slow to answer. God, I've I've been seeking, but you hid it so well. It's difficult for me to find. Lord, I've been knocking, and you've just been slow to answer the door. We pray for God to move mountains, and then we complain because he removes them one stone at a time. God is in the business of keeping his promises. That is who he is. Well, I told you we'd be looking at Matthew chapter 2 today. And we're going to look at the story of the Magi. 
Well, before we get into this story of the Magi, we kind of need to set some records straight about the Magi. So, history tells us, or maybe even tradition tells us, that there was three of them, right? Well, truth of the matter is, in my study, I found that there could have been as many as 12, maybe as few as two. We think of three because they brought them three gifts, right? Gold. Why did they bring gold? Well, gold was nobility. It was for a king. They brought frankincense. Why did they bring that? Because that was for teaching for a priest. Remember what they called Jesus? Called him the king of the Jews. They called him rabbi. They called him teacher. And then they brought myrrh. And myrrh was for your burial. So just because they brought three doesn't mean there was only three of them. Could have been 12 of them and they still just brought three gifts. Could have been two of them and they had a, they had a lot of gifts, you know. But they brought three gifts. So the number that we see traditionally may not be accurate. That's not the big point here. I do think that the three gifts are critically important what they symbolized, what the Magi knew about Jesus. And the second thing I think we need to clear up is, is that these Magi, they came a long, long way. We'll look in verse 1 where it'll say that, that they, or verse, uh, I think it's verse 1, but you know, they came from the east. They came from the east, all right? So it's potential that these folks were astrologers, from maybe even as far away as Persia. They traveled a long, long way. What we do know is that when they got there, they didn't see the baby in the manger. Now again, tradition shows, we see nativity scenes all the time, where this group of magi is around Jesus in a manger. Well, there's a couple of things about this that, that tells me that this just can't be true. Number one, if we go to Leviticus chapter 12, you will see where this, this process of when a, a female, when a woman has a baby, what she must go through. Number one, she's got to go through seven days of being unclean. Then she has to go through another 33 days of her purification process when she has a, a male then the baby boy must be circumcised on the eighth day. All of that we see in our text, especially over in Luke chapter 2. Speaking of Luke chapter 2, it's another thing we need to clear up. Luke chapter 2 talks about the shepherds that were living in a field and an angel appeared to them and told them that there was this baby to be born in Bethlehem, and this was a sign for them, and they were to go see this baby in a manger. I want you to know that verse 11 in Matthew chapter 2 says that the Magi, they go see a child in a house, not a baby in a manger. So we kind of need to fix history a little bit so that we know exactly when these people come. And when they came is a really interesting point. 
There's some that, as I was studying, it felt like that they came during the Feast of Epiphany, which would have been the 12th day of Christmas. It is celebrated on January the 6th. Well, we know that they didn't come 12 days after his birth because of all the other stuff that we, that we see there. See, they had not taken Jesus to the temple yet. In fact, if you're looking at Leviticus chapter 12, you will see where before Mary could go to the sanctuary, before she could touch anything that had been sanctified, that she needed to go through her purification process. The 40 days needed to have happened. So we know that they took Jesus to the temple and Simeon and Anna prayed with this baby and spoke to Mary and Joseph about Jesus. So we know that it didn't happen before then. Well, you say, well, Stoney, it could have come before then. Well, if you remember, Mary, they took two pigeons or doves. And again, if you go back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 12, it's a fairly short chapter. But it says that when you go there, you must sacrifice a lamb. But in the case of you being poor, you can substitute a lamb for a couple of pigeons or doves. If the, if the Magi had come, what was the first gift that they gave them? Gold. Couldn't they have just simply purchased a lamb? They had money. I think it's really interesting, y'all. I got to point this out. I got to point this out. I think that's really interesting that those two terms, a lamb and a dove, if you were in John chapter 1 and you looked at verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God. This animal to be sacrificed. John says, Look, the Lamb of God. If we just go over to verse 32. Verse 32 then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. From Leviticus to John, this is what I was saying about God's Word. It is just also interconnected. It all points to this incredible event, this promise fulfilled that you and I would have a Savior born so that we could get into those promises that we read earlier. Well, it's also interesting that Herod, down in verse 16, we see that part there where Herod shows his true colors. When Herod says, hey, I want all the baby boys two years and younger to be killed. So there's a possibility that somewhere between six weeks and two years old is how old Jesus was when the Magi showed up. It's a possibility. Somewhere between six weeks and two years old. But clearly, it's not the baby in the manger. So the next time we see a nativity scene, don't give it the stink eye if it's got... <laughs> Y'all know what that is. If you see 
magi in there. Well, let's go to our text. Let's open up and let's look at Matthew chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So when I asked that question earlier, what does Christmas invoke in you? What did the birth of Christ invoke in the Magi? Worship. Worship. They came to worship Christ. That was their, that was their sole purpose. Now, it's estimated that they traveled at least 200 miles away. I've, I've done a lot of different study on this. And um, there was a possibility that these were Persian astrologers, meaning they would have come from Persia, the Gulf of Persia. That's really southeast of Israel. They would have had to come up. They would have had to either cross the Tigris, then the Euphrates, or cross wherever they come together, then make their trip on over into Israel, into Jerusalem, and then down to Bethlehem. It could have taken a long, long time. <laughs> it's, it's a really good chance. It's a really good chance that these were Gentiles. It's a really good chance. These were people of high standing, high, moral, uh, high societal standing. Maybe not necessarily kings. We're going to look at Psalm 72 here in just a second. Maybe not necessarily kings, but clearly people of really high standing. They were committed. I thought it was crazy because I was driving 75 miles from Delano going to come to church here. These jokers were hoofing it. Reminded me when I was in South Africa doing a mission trip. We went to pick up the pastor and his wife. They were dressed to kill. I mean, they had just the most immaculate clothes on. She had high heels on. They were walking at least three miles to their church. Walking in South Africa to their church. Man, we're across the road from the church and we can't feel like we just, oh, I don't know if I can make it today. Oh, Lord. Here we go, right? Stop meddling. Just keep to the message, Stoney. Just keep to the message. Stop meddling. Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. What's really, really, really important about the shepherds and about the magi is very clear. You had shepherds who were homeless. They lived in a field. They took care of sheep. That was their job. They were some of the lowest of the society on the rung of society at the time. And then you had this magi who were who were really high society people. And Jesus was born for them all. That was what Matthew tells us over and over. We go to that very end of Matthew, when Matthew's talking about the Great Commission, and we see that Jesus 
is the king of us all. He is the Lord of lords. He is for all of us. We see that in these two groups of people. Don't miss that. You know, there's a strong possibility that these magi were not even in the same location when they saw the star. Clearly, they had been looking at stars to interpret what was going to happen. It's funny because we'll look at a group of people a few minutes from now that were, that were looking at the Scripture to interpret what would happen, and they couldn't see that Jesus was the one. But these gentlemen that were miles and maybe even hundreds of miles away were interpreting stars, and then all of a sudden they see this incredible star and they go, whoa, it draws them together and then it takes them into Israel to Jerusalem and then about five miles south down into Bethlehem. Could you imagine that, y'all? They got all these commitments that are going on in their personal life. But they're like, this is so great. Their pursuit of Christ was so strong that nothing was going to stop their commitment to getting to him. Now, they weren't biblical scholars. We know that because verse 2, they say, hey, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? So we know they weren't biblical scholars. It had been revealed in the Bible. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Isaiah in the Old Testament, 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Can I just stop just for a second and say, not Democrats and not Republicans? Man, if we could just humble ourselves... And pray and seek his face. Maybe we could see that sometime in our life. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The Old Testament claimed it. Over 55 times it claims about Jesus and his coming. His, his, uh, his birth, his life, his death. The Old Testament was filled with this knowledge that a Savior is coming. <laughs> and that these stargazers, <laughs> several hundred miles away, they caught it. While the people around town that had the manuscripts, that had religious leaders, they weren't drawn to it. Let's slide down in our text to the next three verses. When King Herod the, heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them Where's the, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet says. And then here we have a quote of Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, isn't it interesting how this starts out with troubling the king? See, Herod had this view, this, this, this earthly, now, in the moment view of his kingship. He had no idea that this king of the Jews was eternal, was heavenly, transcends all time. And Herod kind of had his, he was a little upset about it. He was threatened by it. Herod was thinking that he was going to be out of a job. Herod was thinking that he was going to be in the unemployment line. Herod was like, oh man, this scripture has been fulfilled. This person has been born. This person is going to be the king of the Jews. I'm going to be out of a job. I'm going to be gone. He was really holding on to his power. Herod was a... um, particular person. He was worried that he wasn't going to get to call the shots anymore. Herod was going to do anything he could to keep his position, including murdering children. He had a history of it. He'd already murdered one of his wives, Miriam, a couple of his boys. Wasn't a big deal to him. And you know, clearly, he obviously, he wasn't a biblical scholar, because he, nor did he know where Jesus was to be born. But there were plenty of people around him that knew and that were willing to tell him. The question is, is why were they troubled? Did you catch that? That Herod was troubled, but all of Jerusalem as well. You know, it's estimated that there were probably about 10,000 members of the Religious groups, religious leaders, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Probably, um, there was also a group called the Essenes. I don't know a lot about the Essenes, but the Essenes, you may know, they were the group that was credited with writing the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 50s. It was a large, pretty large group. So all these religious leaders or religious people are around Herod, He has people willing to tell him stuff. If we look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, just real quick. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And everyone went to their own town. So there is a ginormous crowd in Jerusalem. It's estimated there were probably at least 100,000 people that were there. And remember the story about the, the Pharisees when he goes in to pray and the, the tax collector that was over there kneeling and the, the Pharisee, how he had this really pious prayer, how he was like, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. That was them. They were just constantly just wanting to show themselves to a crowd. So when Herod didn't know the answer, they gladly told him. But the question is, is why were they disturbed? Why was all of Jerusalem disturbed? If we drop down to Luke uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 34 and 35... 
Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul. For Herod, the birth of Christ was a threat to these people. The birth of Christ was, th- was, was a challenge. It disturbed their life. It messed up their plans. Clearly, there were many in Jerusalem that were happy the way things were before the Savior of the world came. They liked it the way that it was. Maybe some around today in our area that feel that they're fine without him. Got to be honest with you, I felt like that for a while too. And in 1981, my life completely changed. If you feel like that today, I hope your life changes today. Because Christ was born for you. We'll go back to our text. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2, and let's look at verse 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find them, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, isn't it odd how pagans want to play church around Christmas time? Oh, here we go, Stoney. I can't help, you know. We ain't sang about Jesus for 360 days, and all of a sudden we're going to put out a Christmas album. Oh, and we're going to gobble it up. Oh, did you hear how beautiful his voice was? Did you hear her voice? Did you see that actor? Did you see my neighbor? Did you see me? Herod was as lost as last year's Easter egg. He didn't care any more about worshiping God, worshiping the Christ, than anything. This was all for selfish gain. I think that may happen today as well sometimes. It's interesting. I don't know who he thought he was fooling. Certainly it wasn't God, because God will not be mocked. We see that in Galatians 6, 7, right? Just because somebody may have a little bit of biblical knowledge, knowledge doesn't mean that they're living in harmony with Christ. I heard a preacher say one time, he said um, that the Holy Spirit, I'll make sure I get this right. He says, the scripture is used by the Holy Spirit, but it's not a replacement for the Holy Spirit. He said that it's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. People can know the scriptures. Satan knew the scriptures, but they had no idea about worshiping or no desire, no draw to worship the Christ. It's funny, if if we had time, golly, we would go to Romans chapter 8 when we see that sin and flesh and then in the spirit, and you can compare. If you get a chance, do this today. Take the Magi and look in uh, Romans chapter 8 about how living in the Spirit and how it just flows for them. And then how living in the, in the flesh just is absolutely clear-cut what Herod was doing and what this other group of people were doing. 
See, the Magi, they had the glory of the Lord. Herod had no idea about the Holy Spirit. The Magi had the Shekinah glory of God in the form of a star directing them and guiding them to the place of Jesus' birth. We'll finish up verses 9 through 12. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. To the Magi, Christmas meant worship. To Herod, Christmas was a threat. To those around Herod, Christmas meant disruption. Let me ask you one more time. What does Christmas mean to you? What does it invoke in you? Let's pray. Lord, may your word be the truth in our lives. May it draw us to you every day. Holy Spirit, pull our lives just as obvious as the star that drove this group of magi to see your birth. Holy Spirit, do that for us. Keep us close to our Father. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us to worship you. Love you. We ask all this in your precious son's name. Amen.